Well, it's nice to be with you again this evening and uh, do want to take this opportunity just on the final night to thank the Assembly. Uh, we really appreciate the invitation to come and to be amongst you and we do thank you for your kindness and hospitality and uh, so many ways the fellowship we have truly enjoyed and we do trust that the ministry will have been a blessing and met the need uh, of the company. Now, this evening, uh, I'm going to vary the format a little bit uh, in that there were four questions that were put in the box at the back, four very interesting and very relevant questions. So what I'm going to do, uh, I have, I suppose, sliced my message in two that I intended to give, and I'm going to put the questions at the beginning, and hopefully the last question that will lead into uh, the message that I had intended, or at least part of it, this evening. So I'm trying to cover uh, both bases and uh, do trust that uh, it will be profitable that we answer these questions because we learn a lot through asking questions. And so this week is all about being uh, learning and furthering our education. But before uh, we do that, we'll read from the Word of God a number of scriptures and uh, the first we'll find in Second Corinthians and chapter five. Second Corinthians and chapter five. And reading from verse nine, wherefore we labor. And whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Back to 1 Corinthians in chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 9, for we, are all, for we are laborers together with God, ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building, according to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, would hay stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Now back to Romans then and uh, chapter 14. Romans 14, verse 10. But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set at not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Now, another couple of readings, one in Second Timothy, just 
at the end of 2 Timothy, and chapter number 4, 2 Timothy 4. And verse 6, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. And <clears throat> finally, back in First Corinthians Chapter 15. 1 Corinthians and chapter 15. Verse number 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, de that is written Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much ye know, as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now we do ask God to bless his word. And as I've said, I want to look just for maybe 15 or 20 minutes at uh, four questions that were uh, just placed in the box with regard to the ministry over the last week. Now, I'll read out the question. The first one, <clears throat> number one, is this. Can the assembly ever adapt with the changing times without compromising the word? Second part, in other words, should we expect any changes in the coming decades? Can the minors change but not the majors? I'll read that again. Can the assembly ever adapt with the changing times without compromising the word? In other words, should we expect any changes in the coming decades? Can the minors change but not the majors? A very relevant and interesting question. And I suppose the difficulty with every question is you're trying to ascertain what was in the mind of the person asking the question. What I would say is just looking at the, the language of the question right away, uh, the word that jumps out to me uh, is the word adapt. And of course the word adapt means uh, to change something so that it will be more suitable to the conditions in which it's found. Now, the short answer, therefore, to the first part of the question, can the assembly ever adapt with the changing times without compromising the word? The short answer, I would say to that, is no. From this respect, that it's not a matter of the assembly as we have defined it, the ecclesia changing to suit the times and the changing times, 
but rather that the assembly, the ecclesia, has been designed as suitable to withstand the changing times. There's a difference. In other words, the pattern that is the ecclesia, the doctrinal position of the assembly as a called out company gathered unto the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, God has designed that in order that it is suitable to withstand the change that takes place and has done throughout the years, rather than the assembly having to change to the times. So that's a short answer, but I do want to develop it because it's an interesting subject. We also need to think of what is meant by, in the question, the assembly. If we're thinking that it is, as we defined on Monday evening, the ecclesia of God, that is the assembly as the body of Christ. Every believer who is saved from Pentecost to the rapture, well, that body never changes. Apart from others being added to it, it is a unique body that will be consistent until the Lord returns and Christ presents the church as his bride. So in that respect, there is no change. When it comes to what I judge is the uh, question in mind is the local assembly, well, what I'm going to do as well is, is to narrow it right down. And we're wanting to think of, can the assembly at Midland Park change? Because really, as I stand here tonight, I can only speak for the assembly of which I am part of and in. Because each assembly is autonomous. It is an individual lampstand. And therefore, I cannot stand tonight and generalize about assemblies. I can only speak for each individual assembly and you two of which you're part of. So we're, we're narrowing it right down to the specific assembly of which you're part of. The reason I say that is because we are living in such a mobile world. We are living in such a closely connected world that it is so easy for us now to look at, to visit, and to be in contact with other groups of Christians and assemblies and to see what they are doing and say, well, if they're doing that, then we should do it. And if they are having that, then we should have it. And what you find is, actually, it's other assemblies that begin to drive the change in the assembly of which you're part of. Now that cannot be because what we're going to see is when it comes to any assembly, I judge that there are three aspects of it. There, are, there is what the assembly is doctrinally. And we pointed out on Monday night that that is the ecclesia. That is what the pattern is, a called out company of believers from the world gathered together through the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit in a geographical location unto the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as far as the doctrinal position of the assembly is concerned, that does not change. Why? Because the word of God never changes. So we, we do not ever need to or would think about altering the definition of what an assembly is. That is unchanging. However, when we come to the assembly spiritually, that is the spiritual condition of the assembly, 
And when we think of the assembly practically as it functions, well, we know that that does change. The reason that that changes is because you and I are part of it. And as we think of the assembly spiritual, spiritually, well, we don't have to read too far in Scripture to see that very quickly there was deterioration, to see very quickly that there was error that crept in, to see in the seven churches the range of spiritual conditions that Christ had to deal with within the assembly. And therefore, there was change. Now, of course, we look for change for the better. Uh, our desire is that each company might be spiritually enriched and edified by the ministry. Practically, of course, <clears throat> well, very simply, we're not living in the first century. And we're not uh, reading from scrolls and wax tablets. We have moved on. We're not even meeting in houses uh, the same way as they did in the first century. So there has been much change over the 2,000 years as far as uh, what we see uh, socially, politically, historically, and in so many ways. And yet, thank God, the wonder is, brethren and sisters, that 2,000 years later, what do we find? We find that really we are much the same as what met in apostolic days. And that's the way it should be. Just think about it. Here we are, gathered together unto the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, trying to continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. We have the breaking of bread, and we have prayers, and we seek to preach the gospel. The sisters' heads are covered. And so let us rejoice, brethren and sisters, that with all the change over 2,000 years, what we find actually this evening, wonder of wonders, is a company gathered as Scripture would have it. And so we must give God thanks for that. There's much to discourage. There's much to challenge us. But let us give God thanks that where the pattern is followed, then really what goes on around us and all the change that is taking place will not have a huge effect. Why? Because I come to another point now that's very important. And that is what drives change. You see, within a local assembly, there will be two aspects that will drive change. There will be, on the one hand, the Word of God, the Spirit of God. There will be Christ and there will be the saints. And I judge that that will drive change for good. On the other hand, there is the world, the flesh, and the devil. Once that begins to drive change, then it's for the bad and it's for the worse. And so in any assembly, we want to see that for it to be edified and for it to continue and for it to grow, that change must be driven by the word of God. That is healthy change where we will see growth. We will see other believers added because the gospel is being preached. Where the Spirit of God is guiding, again, we will see change that is healthy and that is spiritual because it will be according to the Word of God. Where Christ is exalted, well, isn't that what God wants? He wants us all to be conformed to the image of his dear Son. And so we have on the one hand the image of Christ. But if we have in the world the image of the world and that is driving change, well, then the image that we find in the assembly will not be Christ-like. Similarly, when it comes to the people of God, 
We have been learning this week that we are to be examples and we are to be godly was the theme of the meeting last night. Godliness in 1 Timothy so that we might be an example to those that are around us and without. So there is the driver of change for the good. When it is that it's the world, the flesh and the devil, if that is in any way driving change within the assembly, then it will be for the assembly's detriment. And of course, you and I know that that is a constant threat, even in our own spiritual lives. Because what is the the key word now as you look online? Well, it's just this word trending, isn't it? And what does trending mean? It really means hot news. The world constantly loves change. It loves to be updated. It is not content with what it has. And the world thrives on change. But we must remember that for the believer... What sets us apart is actually not change. It is consistency. Why? Because that is the wonderful feature that we find in our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The same yesterday, today, and forever. So that's the uniqueness of Christianity, is its ability to stay consistent despite the change that is in the world, despite the flesh and what it would drive. Now, of course... The threat for that, for you and I, is, and we must be aware of it, that in a world that has become, for instance, reliant on technology, then you and I can be very easily no longer reliant upon God. And our faith starts to slip. And in a world that is, I suppose, become a world of likeaholics, and it lives for the approval of men, The danger is that if that starts to drive the ethos of the assembly, we are looking for the approval of believers before approval of God. And in a world that is is obsessed with recording, they would nearly record somebody now before they would help them. If there's an accident, they're nearly recording it before they go for help. Now, if that starts to drive us, brethren and sisters, we could be so obsessed about about recording ourselves. And and we we miss just the the big need to help one another. And so these are things that that threaten change. Sensationalism, the world loves sensationalism. And and that's one of the things that's driving the whole climate change movement at the minute is groups like Extinction Rebellion telling us that the end of the world is nigh. Well, of course, that's nothing new to you and I when we come to the word of God. Yes, we 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 can preach end of the world stories, but we do it according to the word of God. And therefore, that's what should drive. Now, just an example of that, of course, is Corinth itself. What happened at Corinth was this, that they were driven by the world of philosophy, the sophists, those that, that, that really were concerned about philosophy in Corinth, and it was the wisdom of men. And that was starting to drive what was going on at Corinth. What does Paul say when he comes along? He says, I'm going to preach the cross. To them that perish foolishness. And so Paul starts to drive what's going on at Corinth through the word of God and the word of the cross. And of course at Corinth as well, division, the flesh had got in. 
And there was division and all those different things, the fornication, the idolatry, the problem with the head covering and all those different things. It was being driven by the world and the flesh and what was going on round about. And Paul, he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, when it comes to the woman and her distinction from the man, he says, I'm going to not be driven by culture. I'm going to be driven by creation. And he goes right back to the word of God. So we must be careful what is driving change so that when it comes to, for instance, fashion trends, we thought last night that when we come to the word of God, the word of God will drive modesty when it comes to the apparel of the sister is what we find in 1 Timothy and chapter 2. And so it is that decisions will have to be made with regard to what is of the world and what is of the word of God. Now that, that, that is, that is difficult and that is a challenge for young men and young women in this world that is constantly with advertising driving at trends and wanting us to change and to go with the image that is in the world. What about technology? I just say a word on this with relation to the assembly. We must remember that when it comes to the assembly and the fellowship that we enjoy, it is something that is spiritual. And the assembly is a living organism. And it is not digital. So we're not stuck in the past and we don't ignore technology. We move forward with it. We have a website. We have an online presence in whatever format you choose to have. That's up to you and up to the overseers and the assembly. But remember, just because you have an online presence, that is no substitute for his presence when we gather as an assembly. And you cannot replicate his presence online. So therefore, we need the balance, as in all these things. And we know that when the printing press was invented by Gutenberg, it was used to great effect to spread the word of God. It was also used to print the worst rubbish and filth of the day. And therefore, all these different avenues can be used for good, but they must be used in balance. So we enjoy online ministry. Which of us have not benefited from listening to online ministry? However, it would be wrong to substitute an online message for going to the meeting saying, I'll not bother going to the meeting tonight. Sure, I'll just catch up uh, with a message at home. I'll not bother going to the ministry tonight because it's going to be recorded and I'll catch up with it next week. Because what, in fact, you're missing is the whole point of coming to the meetings is just that we might be enjoying his presence. And we might be enjoying the Spirit of God through his word. <clears throat> as well as that, I would say, we need to be careful too with technology and change because the world of communications has changed, as you and I well know. And so we communicate largely now by text. Now, the danger with that is that we avoid face-to-face -face contact with one another. And the danger with that is too that it can be divisive. 
Now, I don't know anything really about the assembly here, so I'm just throwing this out. But I know uh, certainly in our own assembly, there is a, a desire to have a WhatsApp group, a, a social media group. And I know within young people and how they communicate, uh, WhatsApp groups are very useful. But be very careful that that is not divisive. Be very careful that that does not divide the assembly, either according to age or according to gender. Because nowhere in scripture do we have the assembly being divided. It's fellowship according to gender or according to uh, age. The only one place is where we have an overseer's meeting yonder in Jerusalem, where the overseers met to consider a matter. Now, with effect, we have children's work, we have ESL, we have etc., uh, etc. Et but what I'm saying is just be careful in our communications that we don't leave someone out. Just be careful in our communications that the communications is not based around nationality, leaving somebody out. And therefore, when it comes to it, and there's a difficulty, Matthew chapter 18, where the assembly locally is introduced, we have, if a brother has a problem, what does he do? He goes to the brother and he brings his problem to that brother face to face. Now that's important. Be very careful with sending a text to somebody about an issue that's serious, where the motive where the mood cannot be judged. And therefore, I'm just putting this out in the world of change. Make sure that it's driven, even in our communications, through the word of God. I trust that that's helpful. We could say more even about uh, politics and all the uh, pressures that are upon us in that respect, even with regard to preaching the gospel, where we're allowed to preach and so on. But I'll leave it for now. Question number two. If fellowship is based on doctrine and doctrine is to be taken as a whole, what happens to fellowship when believers don't agree on all teaching? What are the essentials of doctrine to have fellowship? Now again, picking up just on the start of that question, if fellowship is based on doctrine, well, there's something more. Fellowship is not just based on doctrine. Fellowship is based on obedience to doctrine. So we must be clear on that. In Acts chapter 2, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. So it's not just that we have a body of doctrine. It's not just that we have the word of God, but God puts a demand upon us the charge in Timothy, and that is to be obedient to the word of God. And sometimes that, that is missed. And therefore, there is a, a, a responsibility upon us to not only be obedient, but then to continue in the word of God. And in that respect, fellowship is not only going to be known, but it's going to be maintained. Now, if it is, as the question asks uh, correctly, that fellowship and that doctrine is a whole, doctrine is to be taken as a whole, that is very true. But the further question we asked is, what is the whole? Well, I judge that the whole is the whole word of God. 
And therefore, what happens to fellowship when believers don't agree on all teaching? That is the whole word of God. Well, what I would say is this. There's two issues, I suppose, that there will be differences on. Number one, difference in interpretation. And number two, a refusal to obey the word of God. By and large, I think that's where differences come in. When it comes to assembly truth, then we are obliged to examine what the Bible is teaching. And we must make a judgment. Now, when it comes to what we have in Acts 2, I can't really see how there could be much difference when you examine those verses and you see what is taught. They that gladly received his word were baptized. Here's ordinance number one. Now, you're either baptized or you're not baptized. There's no in-between. And it's very clear that that's believer's baptism. Maybe I'm talking to someone tonight and you're saved and yet you're not baptized. Well, I cannot see how you could read your Bible and not come to the conclusion that you should be baptized by immersion in obedience to the word of God. Then with regard to the local assembly, the next ordinance that we have that God has left is with regard to the Lord's Supper. Well, I trust that we have seen that it is very clear that what we do on the first day of the week is according to what he said in the upper room, the bread and the cup. And therefore, there is no great debate over interpretation. Of course, we know that wrong interpretation has led to erroneous teaching with regard to the church, whether it be Peter as the foundation, whether it be Mary as the mother of God, and all that sort of thing. But when we come to the scriptures, we have the benefit once we're saved of the Holy Spirit within. And we're not left to one man to teach us what is wrong, but we're to examine it ourselves as individuals and to see that we come to a scriptural conclusion. The third ordinance, the woman with her veiled head, the man uncovered. I think that really that is very clear in scripture. And you either accept it and bow to the truth of it, or you don't. I was in an, an assembly many miles from here, and I was teaching in 1 Corinthians 11. I noticed just the night before I was due to teach on the passage, uh, a man in the company with a ponytail, long hair. I wondered, well, how was he going to take the teaching? This is what he said to me that night at the door coming out. He says, I did not realize from the Bible, that it was wrong for a man to have long hair. I said to him, I had the words out of me really before, and yet I said, well, it's very easy to put it right. And he looked at me, and he moved on out the door. That was a Tuesday night. I got an email on the way home on a flight on the Thursday. He was at the prayer meeting with his hair as short as mine. What had he done? He had received the word. He had been obedient to it. He didn't ask any questions. And there it was. That wasn't difficult. So sometimes the difficulties, brethren and sisters, I wonder that we put into scripture. Is it because we know what it's going to cost us? Is it because we know what it's going to impact us? And therefore there's maybe not a willingness to receive. Now, 
the outcome, as far as the question is concerned, when there is believers who differ, all that I can say is it puts a limit on fellowship. Now, there is scripture for that. Because when you come to 2 Corinthians, for instance, we could read verses that will relate to 2 Corinthians 6 relationships. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath light with darkness? So there's a very clear instance of where fellowship is going to be limited, and that is a believer should not be yoked together with an unbeliever, whether it be in business or whether it be in a marriage relationship. So maybe you're thinking of who you're going to marry. Well, you must understand that, first of all, it should be a believer. That brings you into an agreement, certainly, of the family fellowship of God. But then I judge it's going to go further. If you're going to be in agreement with them, for how can two walk together unless they be agreed, then you're going to look for someone who is in an assembly. Because you're going to enter into the forum of the local assembly fellowship, of which they receive and you receive them. Now, if that's not the case, when it comes on a Lord's Day morning and you're going to this place and your husband is going to a different place, and your children grow up and they're going to go here and ask, where do I go? You can see that there's a limitation to the fellowship that's going to be enjoyed. A brother, I remember, came out with me one time in the open air. And <clears throat> good fellowship we had. Until I discovered that the assembly that he went to that they believed in household baptism. It was an exclusive company. Now that immediately put a limitation on the fellowship that I could enjoy with him in the gospel. Because if someone got saved when we were preaching in the open air, what are we going to tell them? To get baptized or not get baptized? So you see the confusion that would come in to fellowship if it's not where we are agreed and driven by the word of God. Question number three. Now, <clears throat> this question is quite a long one, so bear with me. But suppose a believer has been in a scriptural assembly perhaps for years, has shared in its privileges and responsibilities, but perhaps due to family situations, they move to an area where there is no assembly. What are they to do? If there is a chapel in their new location, should they go there? Perhaps there is not even this. They no longer enjoy the fellowship of believers. What should they do? Well, that's an interesting one, but I think in its simplest form, this question is really coming down to the will of God in an individual's life. The circumstances that come into our lives are many and varied, but the one thing that we can be sure is that the Word of God and the Spirit of God will always guide us into truth. It will never guide us into what is wrong and what is of error. Therefore, sadly it is that sometimes the name above the door in a building may divide but when it comes to this particular situation, there are three things that I would say 
it would be advisable. Number one, if you're moving to an area and you don't know the local testimony in that area, try and find out someone who does know the area and ask them for advice, that they can recommend a place that you can go. Now, if it is that that doesn't exist, and it is a company who are visibly gathered to the name of the Lord Jesus, I think that will be apparent when you go to that company. And if it is that you do decide to go to that company, are not sure, well, number one, bring a letter of commendation from the assembly that you are going from. That will allow the company that you're going to to know who you are and what you believe. And also, I would say, if it is that you're wanting to go somewhere that you're not sure of and that you want to just observe, well, just do that. Go on a Lord's Day morning and observe. Take a seat. You're under no obligation to be in communion or the fellowship and just observe what is happening. Now, I was talking to a lady again many miles from here, and I'll maybe just give an example of this. She moved to this country from another and she landed in a place, she was nursing, and uh, she knew nobody. And <clears throat> she came into contact with uh, a dear Christian family who heard that she was in the area. And they very kindly saw that she was in need, saw that she was uh, also having to go out late at night in the dark. And they brought her in. They offered her accommodation until she found a house. And then they were very, very kind to her. And they also offered to take her along to the place where they went on a Lord's Day. And she did that. But after a time, she could see that this was not according to the pattern and also not according to the place from whence she had come. Well, what did she do? Well, she said to me, she says, Jonathan, I just prayed about the matter. And I, I brought it before God. I said, this is not according to the pattern. These people have been very kind to me. She didn't want to offend them, but she just prayed that God would open up another way. About five weeks later, a different job came up in an area across town. And as she made inquiries, found out that there was an assembly right beside her work. And she was able to move. She gave the people the reason. She told them. They weren't offended, but the way opened up. And so these are just practical situations that we bring before God in prayer. If it is then that you do move to somewhere and there is nothing, well, extenuating circumstances, God will understand. All that I would say is it's not God's will that we should live our lives in isolation without the fellowship of a local assembly. I would say in relation to that, if it's university that you're going to, seek out the assembly first before you choose your university. If it is a holiday for three weeks, make sure there's an assembly there before you choose the location. And in all these things, whether it's university, a job, put God first and the assembly first. Because remember, we learned on Monday night, it was costly for God to place you in an assembly, and therefore we must value it. So I trust that that's helpful in answering this question. Now, very quickly, the last question, which will lead on to just what I want to speak on for about 20 minutes, and that is number four. How do we as an assembly, or even individually, 
encourage a brother who hasn't worshipped publicly in years or perhaps encourage those who don't come on a Sunday morning to attend the other meetings of the assembly. Well, how do you answer that one? Uh, The first thing I would say is this. There's one thing should govern all our dealings with one another, and that is love. Love suffereth long and is kind. And were it not for those who were loving and kind and patient with any of us brethren and sisters, where would we be? The second thing is this. We must realize that not all believers are strong. Some are very weak. Now I know in one sense we are all weak because we are dependent upon God. But God does want us to grow as believers. He wants us to have a stronger faith. But there are believers who are weak for various reasons. And any one of us could become weak for various reasons. And therefore there could be a multitude of reasons why a brother is not taking public part. It could be that he never has. That's maybe a different uh, a different problem because sometimes if you don't start when you're young, it's a lot harder when you get older. So I would encourage the young people here, young men, to, to, to take part and come exercised. Study for the Bible reading. Ask a question. Come with your worship on Lord's Day morning. Start with a hymn. You don't need to get up and pray for 10 minutes and give a theological outline of the book of Hebrews in your worship. No, just get started and going and get used to the sound of your own voice. And there are various ways by which that can be encouraged. I remember in our own assembly just that we grew up in, in the Bible reading, it was always the person who was opening asked one of the young brethren to read the passage. Well, that made sure at least you read it before you came out because it got you used to the sound of your own voice. And it's, it's a fearful thing to stand up in front of people and to pray. There's none of us ever get used to it. And we, we, we come onto the platform in fear and trembling. But uh, so, so get started when you're young. But then maybe someone stops. And well, I couldn't go through all the reasons as to why that might be. All that I would say for those of you who are observing such a case, the first thing is to pray for that individual, to pray for them. Be kindly affectioned one to another. Oh, to pray. I, 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 I think of, of, the, of the flesh within each one of us. And it just has the potential to bring any one of us down. And we come to the point, we're just like that member of the body that we were talking about the other night. We just feel that we're useless. And we might just come to the conclusion, well, you know, there's just no point in me taking any more part. Listen, if that's you in that situation, that doesn't work. Staying silent doesn't work. It will do you no good in either your recovery It will do the saints certainly no good because they're being deprived of your worship and above all, it's robbing God of praise and worship and glory. Now, would any of us want to do that? Coming to the Lord's table. Oh, I trust that we have good table manners. We were always taught as a child, 
to give thanks before we left the table for what we received. Wouldn't it be a sad thing to leave the Lord's table and not to give God thanks for what he has given us? Brethren and sisters, if it's only five words, we should be a thankful people. And if there's not that in our hearts to give thanks, then maybe there's a deeper problem. But let us pray for those who are finding the going difficult. It may be that an oversight is able to ascertain knowing the sheep and able to just draw close an exhortation or maybe just to be able to have a chat with a person, just to have them for a meal to their house, all the ways that we can encourage and show love. But just always to remember that the member of the assembly is necessary and essential. And I would add before I leave it, that when it seems that you've exhausted all your wisdom and exhausted all your ideas as to how to help a person, just leave them with God. Because remember, God has his own way of dealing with every one of us. It's called chastening. And he does it out of love. It's proof that we're sons of God. And so God will either deal with us through his word. And if we obey his word, it's much less painful. But if we do not respond to his word, for instance, word that is being received in ministry. Well, then we give God no other alternative but to deal with us according to a more painful way, and that is his chastening hand. But in whatever way God will deal with us, to make us what he wants us, and so we must bear that in mind, that sometimes a person needs to be left so that God is dealing with them. It could take a period of time, brethren and sisters. You look at the life of Jacob and think how long it took God to deal with Jacob from he left Bethel till he went to Peniel until he was left from Peniel with a limp that he likely had the rest of his life. But it brought him back to Bethel, a more godly man. So it is. We pray that God will deal with everybody. And I think of a verse just that will lead us into my little consideration in closing. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another so much the more as ye see the day approaching. And just for about 20 minutes, you'll pardon me going to quarter past tonight, but just with these questions, I want to think for a moment of this day. We called it Monday night graduation day. Thank God there is a graduation day. As we have thought of further education, there is a higher education. There is something that lies beyond. It's often been said that the best is yet to come. And I want to think of the change to glory. I then want to think just of the challenge in glory. And then I want us to think as well, lastly, of the crown of glory. Just those three points, a word on each. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 of the great change and the great truth of the rapture. Now it's something that we must consider because Paul in 1 Corinthians 
He made it very clear in 1 Corinthians 15 that if believers only live and their hope alone is in Christ in this world, they will be of all men most miserable. What was he saying? He was saying, even though we are saved, even though we are part of a local assembly, and even though we are in Christ, if our vision only goes as far as this world in which we're in, we're going to be miserable. That is why my little exercise tonight on this final night is just to get our eyes lifted upwards, brethren and sisters, to the hope of the church and the ecclesia, which is this glorious truth of the rapture. Not so much heard maybe amongst us, and that's maybe just an indicator of the fact that we're so earthbound. And maybe that's sometimes where we become so miserable, despite life's sorrows and difficulties, which we all have in some respect. God wants us to get a look above. Oh, he does. And he wants us to get our eyes on this wonderful truth of 1 Corinthians 15, which they were not living in the good of. Why? Because the problem specifically there was they were doubting the resurrection. Now, not the resurrection of Christ. It was the resurrection of the saints, those that had fallen asleep. But the problem is, and as we trace Paul's argument, is just like this. Because they were doubting the resurrection of the saints, they were implying that Christ did not rise. And, says Paul, if the dead be not raised... Christ must not have risen, and therefore your preaching is in vain. You see the argument. Now, I don't think for one moment any one of us would doubt the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the difficulty is, we could live as though he hasn't risen. And we could live in this respect, that we don't really believe that he's coming. Because the very guarantee that the dead in Christ shall rise, the very guarantee that you and I will rise to meet him in the air, is the fact that he rose from amongst the dead. That's the glorious power that's going to lift us all up. And says Paul in 1 Corinthians, outlining just what is going to happen, he says, it's a mysterious change that's going to take place. I show you a mystery, something that was not revealed to the saints in the Old Testament, though it was in Tite and Enoch is now going to be fully revealed in this wonderful truth of the rapture. Look what he says, we shall not all sleep. My, I love those words. Just thinking about them today. Isn't it wonderful, brethren and sisters, that there's going to be a company, and you and I could be part of it, which shall never, ever die? See, this question asked, what changes do we expect to see in decades to come? This is the change that we should be looking for, brethren and sisters. What change do we expect to see in 2020? Are we looking for it? The imminent return of the Lord. Imminent, not soon. Soon implies a period of time. Imminent means it could happen any moment. And says, Paul, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But a second thing about this change, it's momentary. Oh, I love these words. He says, we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Did you ever think why it's going to be in a moment and in the twinkling of an eye? Just the flutter of an eye. The world talks about a nanosecond. No, it's far quicker than that. Do you know what I think? It's just this. 
Every soul who is saved, they are saved in the twinkling of an eye, in a moment. And as our soul is saved in a moment, it's going to be no different when our body is saved and redeemed. In a twinkling of an eye, we shall be all be changed. God, there will be no delay. There will be no need for a process of evolution. It will all happen in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, we shall all be changed. Brethren and sisters, do we believe it? Scripture teaches us. What's his third thing? It's going to be a monumental change. Because look what he says. At the last trump, the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall all be changed. By the way, it is that we're going to be changed. We're going to have changed bodies. We're not going to get new bodies. That just makes it all the more amazing to think that this old body of mine and yours is going to be changed. Do you ever think of that, brethren and sisters? And so let us not be too worried about just uh, this body of ours down here and trying to make it better and improve it and, and, and how it looks. We should look after our bodies, but remember, it's going to be changed. We are looking to a glorified body. How comforting is that? Paul says the dead shall be raised incorruptible. What a comfort that is to those maybe who have lost loved ones. They're going to be raised. 1 Thessalonians 4 gives us the detail, doesn't it? The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first and then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. Right in the very realm of Satan himself, for he is the prince of the power of the air, but the one who defeated death and gave us a victory over him that had the power of death that is the devil. He's going to see a host of multitudes and millions and billions right in the air, caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. Why? All because he rose from the dead. Resurrection power will lift us. Nothing else can happen. The wonder is, are we ready for it? wonder am I talking to someone tonight who's not saved? And you're not rapture ready. If the shout were to come and Midland Park Gospel Hall would be emptied this evening, you would be left behind. I believe that with all my heart if you're not saved. I tell you tonight, put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died, but the one who said, I will come again. The promise of his return. Monumental. And so this corruption will put on incorruption. And this mortality will put on immortality. And we will be raised. And so at that moment, events will divide into those that are happening in heaven and those that are on earth. I don't believe for one moment that the church will go through the tribulation. No, Revelation chapter 3 tells us that we're going to be delivered from that hour of trial and tribulation that will come upon all the earth. I don't believe either that the church will go through part of the tribulation. No. No, we know that if the saints are going to come back with Christ, there has to be a time that they go to be with Christ. But we don't know the moment of his return. And if we put the Lord's return anywhere within the tribulation, then we can calculate when he's coming back. If it's in the middle of the tribulation, we know from the start, three and a half years he's going to return. So we are very sure that scripture teaches that we will not go through the tribulation. If we are not appointed unto wrath, 1 Thessalonians 1, we're waiting for God's Son from heaven who will deliver us from the wrath to come. Blessed thought.
the change to glory. What a transformation. But then the challenge. Because we have read three scriptures that teach us that when we're raptured to be with the Lord in the air, we are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We were taught when we were younger the bema. That is just the, the, the Greek word for it, as it was something that the people of the first century will wear, were very well acquainted with. And it's very interesting that there are two judgment seats at least that are mentioned before this one. One is relation to Pilate. Pilate sat upon a judgment seat. And there it was Roman judgment and it was corrupt. In the book of Acts we find Herod and he's upon a judgment seat. There it's a religious judgment and it's corrupt. But you know who's going to be upon this judgment seat? Brethren and sisters, it's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore there will be no corruption when it comes to his judgment. It's going to be fair and it's going to be accurate. What's it going to be based on? 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, the first assessment, things done in the body. And there it is really what is being revealed about you and I. Says the apostle, we must all appear. Now that just doesn't mean that we're all going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. That's true. But the thought in the word appear is to be manifest. In other words, the purpose of the judgment seat of Christ in this context is for Christ to make manifest, is to open us up so that we might see for ourselves what we really are. Mind you, that's solemn, isn't it? Because the truth is, there's no one knows us like the Lord Jesus Christ. And because it's deeds done in the body, that includes body, soul, and spirit. And therefore, he will be able to open and to show us our motives. He will show us why we sent the text. He will show us why we did what we did. He will show us just what really we are. My, as I studied this, it made me tremble. Remember this. There's one thing that we will never face at the judgment seat of Christ, and that is our sin. Thank God for that. Because there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. What is this all about then? This is with a view to reward. He wants to give us reward on this graduation day. But he's going to do it in a way that there will be no arguing with. Because he's going to show us just what we really are. And what we did in the body, whether good or bad. And the sense in bad is not according to sin. But really it's what is of worth and what is of no value. That's the good and the bad. Now remember this, it's what is done in the body means that it's done while we were alive. In other words, this is not reward for what is posthumous. That means if somebody decides to leave some Christian organization five million, you'll not get any reward for it. This is what is done in the body. Brethren and sisters, have we got it? 
That's why in Romans 10 he wants us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. That is our reasonable service. Why? Because that's where we'll receive reward from. Oh, brethren and sisters, isn't it challenging tonight as we think of what we do in our body? What we'll suffer loss for? That which is moral. That which is immoral. That which is motivated by pride. That which was motivated by greed. That what was motivated by selfishness. He's just going to open it all up. And he's going to say, sorry, there's no reward for that. And maybe he'll find little things that we've forgotten about. That we did in our body. Nobody else saw, but he saw. And there'll be reward. Because he will reveal. That is the point of 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. In 1 Corinthians 3, it's now not things done in the body. It's what's built into the assembly. It's now an evaluation of service. And so we see that the reward is going to be for every man's work, says the apostle. It shall be made manifest on that day. What's going to be made manifest is now what we build into the local assembly. And six materials are mentioned. Three that are of value, three that are not. The gold, silver, precious stones, the wood, hay, and the stubble. And therefore we must ascertain how are we building Are we building with the wood, hay and stubble? So easy to build with the wood and the hay and stubble. And yet when the fire tests it, it'll just be burned up. Oh, that we might build with that which is of value. The gold and the silver and the precious stones. You can apply it if you like. The gold, thinking of Christ and his deity. Put much of Christ into the assembly. At Corinth, they were building with the the stubble of the flesh and of division. And on the day of reckoning, it will be worth nothing. Boasting of how many souls we saw saved. Boasting of who's the greatest. Boasting of this, when it comes to the end, it will be worth nothing. Why? Because Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the increase. You see, the reward is for the work and the labor that we put in. God is not looking at the numbers and the results because it's he who gives the increase. And therefore... How we build according to the pattern. On what do we build? No other foundation hath been laid than that what is laid, that is Christ. And with what do we build? Make sure it's good materials. Romans 14. Not now the deeds done on the body. Not now what we build into the assembly. But how we treated our brother. Why dost thou judge thy brother? And set him at naught, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Which of us is not guilty of this one, brethren and sisters? Which of us does not gather round our tea table at times and talk about another brother or sister? You know. And yet we're going to be faced with it at the judgment seat of Christ. Oh, how we need to care for one another. How we need to be helpful to one another. Not of that critical spirit. Because remember this. That brother that you set up not. That brother that you maligned because you were jealous. That sister that you walked out without speaking and wouldn't shake her hand. 
You know, she's going to appear at the judgment seat of Christ, and so are you. And Christ will show open what was behind it all. Do you say, but what is the reward? Well, I come as I close to the crown of glory. I judge that the reward is really an eternal capacity to serve God for all eternity. As we are with Christ. In other words, what we do down here in our appreciation of him and how we live down here is going to affect our service up there. You see, we sometimes think that it'll just all end with a rapture and there we'll be, we'll have one look at Christ and that will be it and we'll be with him. I tell you not, brethren and sisters, it's only the beginning of our education up there. That's just the start of our higher education as we reign with Christ, as we serve him. In the wonder of heaven, and yet there will be reward. Wonder that he wants to give us rewards. What are the rewards? Scripture tells us. Number one, 1 Corinthians 9, there'll be the incorruptible crown. What's that for? Our run and our fitness. How are we running? Running the race that is set before us. Striving for the prize and the goal. 1 Thessalonians 2 and 19 is the crown of rejoicing. As Paul looked at the Thessalonians, what was his crown of joy and rejoicing it was just to see these believers in the presence of Christ when the Lord comes knowing that he had preached the gospel to them and here is the reward for seeking the lost oh brethren and sisters there's reward for that little Sunday school class that you took and the time that you put into it and the children that you had an impression upon and maybe you'll only see some of them in the rapture when you're with the Lord And it will be all exposed and there will be reward. The crown of righteousness. That's the righteousness and it's our faithfulness. Why? Because there will be a reward for faithful service. And we see that in that lovely verse that we read in 2 Timothy. And in chapter 4, a man nearing the end of his life. Oh, he says, I am now ready to be offered. I have finished my course. The Roman block just lie ahead. I have fought the good fight, the right fight, and henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. And listen to what it goes on to say, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day, and not only to me only, but to them that love his appearing. Are you looking for his coming, brethren and sisters? Are we really looking forward to it? Or are we so earthbound that we would just like 2020 in this world to get a few more deals done? Is there so much that we would struggle to leave behind if the shout came tonight? Maybe some of us would be wanting to go back for your phone to see was a message or two. We're so glued to this world. But we leave all that behind. And every single person will leave this world penniless. And the only thing that will be of value is the treasure that we put in heaven. How much have you got in that account tonight? I tell you, it pays the best interest. There is reward. Our reactions, James 1, 12, it's the crown there of life. What's that? For temptation and trial and how we endure difficulty. Dear sister, maybe a life of ill health, you can't get out too much, but you've been praying and faithfully went through that trial without a complaint. We admire some believers as to how they deal with trial. Be a reward. There's a crown of life. And in 1 Peter 
Fifthly, there's a crown of glory. What's that? That's responsibility. That's the reward for those that are overseers, those that have responsibility among the flock. And so I say to overseers tonight, it might be difficult. There might be no retirement. There might be sacrifice. There might be jobs and there might be things that you'll have to You'll have to give a miss just because of the responsibility that falls upon you. But listen, it's all going to be worth it. There is reward. And the wonder is that he wants to reward any one of us. And that he wants to acknowledge what we did. But what will it all be for? As we stand before him, brethren and sisters, graduation day, and he stands there with his nail-pierced hands and feet, And we stand there in our graduation gowns. You say, what's that going to be? Well, I think Isaiah 61 tells us. He has clothed us with garments of salvation, covered us with a robe of righteousness, and we'll stand before him. And I think of the words of Robert Murray McShane. You know, he was only 30 when he died. Four years before he died, he wrote those lovely words. When I stand before his throne, Dressed in beauty, not my own. When I see thee as thou art, love thee with unsinning heart. Then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. Brethren and sisters, is it worth it? I close with the words of C.T. Studd. They've challenged me as I read them. This is what he wrote. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. Enjoy or sorrow thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life, only one life. T'will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. He went on to write this. O let my love and fervor burn, and from the world don't let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure only to thy throne, only one life. We just have one go at it, brethren and sisters. He's placed us in the assembly. May we give it our all. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Get our eyes upward, the change to glory, the rapture, the challenge of glory, the review. But thank God there's the crown of glory. There is reward. For all those who seek to labor on for him. May God bless his word and our meditations upon this truth regarding the church shall we pray.